Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Danielle Tolman, and I am, as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist. And today we have a very, very special guest that we are super excited about. We are joined by Kathy Epley, daughter of the famous John Epley in our vestibular world. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And congratulations on your, your getting <laughs> yes. married. Thank Dr. you very Tolman. much, <laughs> Dr. Tolman. It's a it's a has a nice ring to it. <laughs> I love it. We are so excited to talk to you about your father because his contributions to the field are just astronomical. You cannot say the word vertigo without having the last name Epley being thrown into that conversation. Um, so why don't you give us a little bit of a background on your dad? You know, I read a lot about him, um, online in his, um, some articles that were written about him and he was a man of many different talents and interests, I will say. Yeah. Did you, did you see the article about him writing the fight song? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I wrote that for the Klamath Falls newspaper. I thought that was a, a nice, a, you know, a nice introduction to my dad. And that was for his school's uh, football team, right? Where he was the quarterback of the football yes. team, which is amazing. Yes. yes. And very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also did a lot of work outdoors. He was um, helping with uh, spotting uh, forest fires and firefighting. And I mean, he was a man who just, he really put a lot out there and helped a lot of people uh, all over the place. Yeah. It seems like, um, it was a family trait, I think, um, that the people in the family really were into contribution and they had an approach to work that where they, you know, they just put their all into whatever job, be it counting sprockets to, you know, being a doctor. So yeah, everybody in the family is like, like that on my dad's side of the family. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And with that, I mean, he left quite the legacy in the vestibular world and beyond. I mean, like Danny said, you can't say the word vertigo and not think of Dr. John Epley himself. One of the things that you had mentioned prior to the show was his ability to really listen to a patient. And that's one, what probably made him stand out as a clinician, but also helped get him to where he was in terms of figuring out the Epley maneuver as we know it today. Can you talk to us a little bit about him as a clinician, him in the vestibular world? Uh, well, he, he told me um, that he thought his real talent was being a diagnostician and that part of that uh, talent was that he listened to the patient. He didn't rely just on the objective testing, the VNGs and the, the different tests. So that was kind of a starting off point. And um, I think I learned some of that through osmosis. I found myself applying it when he had a stroke. I found myself in dealing with the doctors and the hospitals, seeing aspects of my dad that maybe the hospital would overlook. And and uh, he ha there were several people who spoke at his memorial service who said that he was the most patient-centric doctor they had ever met. And then the people who worked for him all 
felt that way too. And I didn't really understand what that meant because it was just so much a part of him. I thought it was, I guess I thought it was normal, the normal way to practice. But it it is, yeah. I mean, it's too bad. You know, I think that should be a bigger part of his legacy is, is, uh, you know, the way you approach patients. And I know that he really helped change the way you approach the dizzy patient uh, because so many patients were thought to be psychiatric cases mm-hmm. or, uh, or it was in the brain and they were kind of shoved aside. In fact, sometimes they still are. You're right. I mean, that's something that we've actually spoken a lot about on our episodes that listening to the patient should be your number one thing that you do. It should be the first thing during your evaluation is let the patient tell you exactly what's going on. Because if you listen long enough, they usually tell you exactly what is is, is going on inside their bodies and it, they're going to help you through that evaluation and being a better diagnostician. So that is absolutely the foundation of, of how both Abby and I practice today and how many other people do practice and should practice is they have to be patient centered and focused. It's hard for people who experience vertigo because until you experience it, you really can't quite put your finger on how to accurately describe it. And even when it is happening to you, I mean, there's been so many different ways that people try to describe it that sound insane to other people, but it's not until you get to feel it yourself that you really understand like, oh, yeah, it does feel like my brain is floating or that the room is spinning or that the the earth is tilting. Um, so being able to put patient focus first, I think, is probably what led him down this path of, you know, really being an advocate for his patients and helping people out and making the impact that he did. Yeah, in fact, I was at a, a party for a bunch of lawyers. It was an open house for a law firm, and there was the head of a um, um, medical malpractice, the uh, the, the doctors, not the defense, but the people, well, I forget which side is which, but they represented uh, the insurance companies. And he said that they had a handful of cases nonstop that had where my dad was the patient advocate. And he was sort of like a thorn in the side of the insurance companies who wanted to deny uh, insurance, you know, to cover the cover the expenses or cover the living expenses or workers' comp or whatever, um, because they were claiming the patient was malingering. And my dad was able to prove each time that they weren't, and he was there constantly supporting them. And and this guy who was constantly going up as my dad was a thorn in his side for his client said he had a lot of respect for my dad because he clearly was a sincere patient advocate. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, also that's so important in this patient population because for the most part, it's an invisible illness. It's not a broken arm that you see a person in a sling with. It's something that you really are relying on the patient's story. And while there can be psychological impacts from the vestibular symptoms, you know, I still to this day have people come to me and say, my doctor thinks it's all in my head. And it's it's just heartbreaking because you want more Dr. Epley's out there that, that realize, you know, that's not the case. Well, there can be psychological impact. These symptoms are real. Yes. In fact, I'm, I was at a, an American Academy of Otolaryngology meeting, and I was in one of the classes, and there was a young ENT doctor, young, I mean, he's 40-ish, turned to me and said, what do you do with all these patients who claim they're dizzy? They're all just, you know, crazy. <laughs> he didn't believe any of them. Ugh. And he's an ENT doctor. 
So, oh, and he was in, you know, and, and I was in a class, I think it was probably, you know, a class on BPPV or something vestibular. Those are the only ones I went to. So, yeah, it's, he it's, thought I was a doctor. You know, he assumed I was just another doctor. So, and I'm it's not, not uncommon. Yeah. It's definitely not uncommon for for people to hear that from their doctor. I can't tell you how many patients say, oh, my, my doctor told me it was a normal part of aging to be dizzy, yeah. that this was this was something that was just going to happen. I had to live with it. You know, it, it's still super common, which is why we as clinicians and people, we volunteer a lot with the Vestibular Disorders Associ Association. We push to try to help raise awareness and get the training out there for the people that need that training. You know, making videos, having these podcast episodes, it's mostly to get the information out there and to get people on board. And I think they're seeing it more and more now and it's being so much more accepted. But back in the day, this was a whole new thing. I mean, talk about being a thorn in the side. Your dad had to really fight through his new theory on what was causing this positional vertigo and had a lot of pushback from everybody in the medical community. Well, yes, it wasn't just um, just benign positional vertigo. There were a lot of accident victims, uh, you know, post-concussive syndromes and all kinds of things going on where he was always testifying for patients and um, being the only one. And, you know, and he was kind of the end of the line for people and they would show up in his office and, you know, they'd seen 10 doctors, their wife had left them and their kids were no longer talking to them. They'd lost their job. They were bankrupt, you know, and my dad was, um, you know, if there was a way to solve it, he, he, he would try to solve it for them. So, yeah, he, and because of that, he never made a lot of money. <laughs> he drove my mother nuts. <laughs> you know, the other piece that's so important, I think, is that the impact, one of the main impacts he had on the vestibular world is completely conservative. You know, it's not yes. an invasive procedure. And while, you know, that may have implications in terms of finances on the physician standpoint, that's great for the patient. We love that conservative approach. Tell us a little bit more about how he dove more into BPPV and the particle theory. So, um, you know, my dad was trained as a surgeon and was a very successful surgeon. He was, you know, in the top tier of, of uh, you know, whatever the latest surgery was. If he hadn't been the first, he was the second or third to try it. And and he was always right up there uh, on the bleeding edge. And so he was very well known and respected as a surgeon. And uh, he, he was one of the few that was doing, I call them vestibular nerve sections. I think doctors call mm -hmm. them something else, but he, he thought it was a, a barbaric surgery. That's the term he used with me. Uh, and he said that he, there just had to be a better way because that was the only way you could take care of benign positional vertigo uh, back in the day, I guess that would be in the maybe the 70s. And um, and he was getting cases from all over the country because uh, he was one of the few who could could do the surgery and he hated doing it. Uh, and so he just decided he was going to look for a better way. And he he reviewed the literature and uh, decided uh, he had a physics background from college had dabbled a lot in physics and was always interested in it. And he reviewed the literature and he decided that the prevailing theory uh, didn't match with um, the physiology and the anatomy of the ear, that it didn't make any sense. And I, now I'm not a doctor and it's been a few years since I've um, even 
haven't even thought about these terms, but it, I believe it was a, a mass. They thought it was a mass in the ear that was causing the vertigo. But he, you know, he pointed out that if you turn the patient, um, the vertigo stops after a while, and that wouldn't necessarily be true with a, with a mass. And, and so then he hypothesized that it must be particles. Yeah, which is really cool. When you think about it, a lot of these breakthroughs in research have come from people that have paired the like uh, physics and the vestibular system. You look at Dr. Uh, Neil Shepard, some of the new um, devices and technology that's coming out to mitigate vertigo are coming from people who primarily studied um, physics and physiology. And, and marrying the two is very interesting because it is an organ that's basically um, centered around movement, which is physics. So whether it's linear right. or angular, it, you know, there's something there that is triggering the body to react the way it's triggering. So the fact that he came up with this theory that kind of upended everything that was originally thought was going on was absolutely amazing. And that was back around late 70s, early 80s, I think. Right. It was the it was the late 70s. And, um, you know, he came up with this particle theory and he submitted a paper a few times and it was it was turned, you know, and I, they turned it away. And, uh, and then he came up with his maneuvers and he described, you know, the anatomy and the physiology and how, and how you would turn a patient. So he described all the different ways you could turn it. Now they just, uh, it seems to be the vernacular to refer to the posterior canal maneuver as, or the canalithiasis posterior canal maneuver as, as the epi maneuver. But they're, you know, he described all of them and it's, he just looked at the anatomy and, and the physiology and, and figured it all out. That's amazing. You know yeah. what else I really love in, in speaking with you, especially is that the word perseverance, it extends across the whole realm of vestibular care. So he not only had to persevere with patients, right? Going through lawsuits and getting people better who have been to 15 doctors before him, but also he was changing the game and facing resistance, but made it out on the other side. I just think that's so respectable. Yes, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for him for that. And I think that's a, an Epley trait. Um, having watched it, I would never want to put myself out there like that because I think it, you know, it impacts your health and your, uh, and, and in fact, it's his livelihood and, and uh, it's a tough road. He said the first time he presented it, um, or one of the first times he said that a lot of people walked out and people were standing up and, you know, or heckling him. And one guy made a big dramatic move and these are all ear doctors or ear, nose and throat doctors. And one guy came up, walked up to the front with my dad's hand out and threw it down on the table and said something about how this was complete bunk and walked out and <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I bet, I bet those, ENTs at that conference or wherever he was presenting would love to go back in time and redo that whole experience. Oh, sure. Of course. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, the, there were, because he had a good reputation as a surgeon and he top schools and brilliant man, there were, uh, especially his friends. So they listened to him and there were plenty of people that listened and went home and, and tried his maneuvers. And, uh, over the course of, uh, you know, half a dozen years or so, pretty soon, you know, there'd be a thousand people in his course. It was the biggest attended course, I, I believe, in the history of the academy. 
and um, and and then uh, he kept on submitting his paper, kept on submitting it, and then finally there were enough people on the editorial board that had taken his class that he finally got his paper published in 1992. Well over a decade since he started talking about about his uh, his particle theory and the maneuver, so took a that's while. A long, that's a long time, and after uh, people have repeatedly gone back and repeated his study, his research, his methods, and had found success. I mean, when's enough enough at that point, you know, you've got to, you've got to hope that people start to get on board and see how much it's helping their patients. And I'm sure doctors are, were ecstatic to be able to help these patients. Cause what do you do with somebody that you don't know how to help? You know, it, it's hard to just make that, you know, turn around out the door and say, I can't help you. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think a lost in this too, is the diagnosis. I'm sure you, you know, the diagnosis can be, you know, can be pretty tricky. Just because the eye move doesn't mean it's in the posterior canal. Only about half of the cases are straightforward. The rest are a jumble of different canals and different variants, you know, cupulothiasis or apex block or um, oh yeah, <laughs> multiple, multiple canals, canals on two sides, canals on both sides. It can get it can get pretty complicated. It but, can. It can, but you know, you know, when we go to these courses and I do a lot of um, mentoring and teaching for different clinicians on this is if you can apply the basic principles, if you can look at the, the physiology of the inner ear, you can take those tools and figure out what's going on. I'm probably sure it's similar to what your dad did. He looked at Ewald's laws. I'm sure he looked at how the anatomy um, was of the inner ear and was able to piece together this puzzle. It, it's what it is. It's a big puzzle. And you're right. It's very rare that somebody walks in with a very straightforward case. We te technically start to see people that are more layered or complicated or atypical. And then everything doesn't normally go as planned during you know maneuvers either. You can have issues like uh, cantilever jams, and you can have canal conversions, and you have to be able to think on your feet and picture what's going on to get the patient to feel better. And you know we at least have the the tools to our disposal of the knowledge that your dad put out there in the, in the field. Because without that, I'm not sure I would have been as confident in in being able to treat this. Um, you know, it's it's a it can be very difficult. Right. Yeah. So I think the diagnosis is important. And I, I know that, you know, we, um, I worked with my dad for, a, you know, more than a decade on with the Epley Omniac system. Mm -hmm. We commercialized that. And uh, every time we'd sell a unit, even though the doctors were gung ho to get it, who bought it, um, about three to six months later, I'd get a phone call every single time. <laughs> and they'd say, you know, about a th I had all these patients that uh, were under management, about a third of my patients, and they were just kind of sitting there and I, you know, and I didn't know what to do with them. Maybe they had gotten a little bit better. Maybe it backslid. Uh, maybe I thought they had BPPV and I treated it and they got a little better, but not completely. He said, when we got the Omniacs, we cleared them all out. We were able to figure out that some of them didn't even have BPPV. They had something else going on, or we found a, it was in a different canal. And so it, really helped clear them, clear all of that out. Uh, and now are, are, is the Omnimax still available for purchase? Is that something that's still no, on the market? No, I, we, uh, during Obama, you know, we launched right in the middle of the whole Obamacare recession thing. And it, it was just, a, and my dad had a stroke, uh, mm -hmm. about two months after we launched okay. and, uh, it kind of took all the fun out of it for me. Um, and it was, it was, it was, a, so we sold the patents to somebody who was not able to, who, who never did anything with them. 
at, at least not commercially. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And so we, there, we, I think we had sat about 28 out there. In fact, we, uh, uh, Fred Erig in Boston just retired and he sold his unit to Glenn Zelensky here in Portland. And Glenn is, as I speak, I think the unit's being assembled here in Portland. So I'm glad that Portland has one. And uh, so the units, as doctors retire, I hope they'll, you know, they'll move around the country. Sure, sure. You know, the other thing I want to point out, too, is when you think about time frame, you know, that wasn't that long ago, right? Mm. It's crazy how much vestibular care has changed in the last 40 years, even. I mean, 30, 20 years. It's, it's wild to me. Yeah. You know, my dad said when he was a resident at Stanford, um, nobody had ever seen BPPV before because they didn't know how to look for it. They didn't know what it was. And he, they, he said a couple times they'd have a patient on a table and everyone, he'd, somebody would come running down the hall saying, we've got some BPPV and everybody would go running the other way down the hall and try to catch it. By the time they got there, as you know, you know, the eyes had quit moving around. And so he said he, he went all the way through residency without ever seeing a case of benign positional vertigo. Oh, my God. And, yeah, people just didn't know to look for it. They thought it was, uh, you know, some, you know, they just thought it was so psychological or they thought it was in the brain. So it's, it's a huge change. And uh, I think you know, my dad's very stubborn. It's a huge uh, pro and con to his personality. But he, he just felt, um, you know, once he figured out uh, what he knew, he felt like he had to stand his ground and make sure that people would approach the dizzy patient much more carefully and, and, and uh, look for benign positional vertigo and, and find there are cures, not just palliative solutions. I hate to use the word cure, but there are treatments, mm -hmm. not just palliative solutions for the dizzy patient. Thank goodness for that. I mean, millions of people, millions of people is how many people he's helped. I can't tell you how many people come in and I do a lot of patient education in the office, especially in the first visit. And I, I really want people to understand what's going on in their body and why this is happening to them. And I remind them that this is something that's fairly new because they'll say something like, oh, my mom had this or my dad had this or something in their family, but they never did anything for it. And I have to remind them it's only been in the last couple of decades that this has been figured out and applied and, you know, is still being perfected. You know, the the uh, maneuver that your dad came up with initially is very different from the maneuver and the precautions that we do today, just under the way that we, you know, take precautions with the patient following maneuvers and things like that. But it's still essentially the same thing. And it's it's come a long, long way in a short amount of time. And a lot of patients, their minds are blown. They go, I don't think I could have lived with this for the rest of my life. This is horrible. Who who would not get treatment for this? This is crazy. This is insane. And they're grateful that this something like this exists and something so easy now where you can go on YouTube. You know, we've put together a YouTube video where we go through and do a ton of education and explain how to do this maneuver at home and do it safely and when to do it and why you would apply it. But, you know, please still go see a healthcare professional. And 
I think we've got hundreds and hundreds of comments on it just in the year of people saying how it saved their lives, how this got them back to being functional again. They wouldn't know what they would have done without it. And it's just something that is a staple in the vestibular community. This is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's concrete. It's here to stay. It's effective. It's, you know, doesn't cost a ton of money. It's helpful for the patients. There's no drugs. There's no surgery. I mean, this is kind of like the gold standard when it comes to being able to give the patient something to be able to help them with an issue. You know, it's just, it's really, truly amazing. Yeah. You know, I had a really bad case of it maybe two and a half years ago. Oh my goodness. And well, I, I first had benign positional vertigo in, in 2002. That's, it, I had a concussion and that was one of the symptoms, but I, the really bad case I had was a couple of years ago after I'd used a CPAP and it apparently malfunctioned and went up to like the maximum level of air and oh. went up into my eustachian tube and it seemed to my otolith organ is damaged and oh, it seemed to, and then I started having these really horrendous cases of positional vertigo. I was so sick. I was in bed by myself and I thought it, if I didn't know what benign positional vertigo was, I would have thought I was going to die. It's very scary. Yeah. I tried to walk and it was like, I, it was like I was in a dream. And, and um, so I sat on the edge of the bed and I, I actually prayed to my dad and I said, thank you. I, I said like a little prayer or a little thank you prayer to my dad saying, thank you for creating this mover. And then I did it and I couldn't believe it. It worked. <laughs> It's one thing, it's one thing to have a mild case, you know, and have it work. But this was a situation where I couldn't move my head left an inch or right an inch. I had to sit straight up in bed like this. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. And then I did the maneuver and I, I was still a little groggy, but I was able to lay down and go to sleep. And I, I thought that was a miracle. Yeah. And I worked with them for years and I still was shocked. Still shocked. You, you said something. You said something that so many patient, patients say, I thought I was dying. Like I had no yeah. idea. And what's so cool about the, the implications that your father has had on, on the vestibular world is that people really think we're magicians sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, oh. it used to be called voodoo medicine. And, and you know, and I understand uh, the, med the MDs or the surgeons, they, they went to school to do surgery. You know, and so they want surgical candidates. They don't want to fool around with dizzy patients because that's not their training. So it's it's been difficult for them. And I think that's a lot of the reason why the physical therapy community has taken up the vacuum and taken it on. Yeah. there And there's a we have we have a nice platform. Right. So um, we have a because of reimbursement and insurance allowances and whatnot, we have the time to spend with the patient more than a physician would within their five or 10 minutes to be productive. Right. So we're, we're in a unique position where we've got 45 minutes to an hour to spend with the patient multiple times a week over multiple weeks where they can follow up with us and we can assess each time they come in and treat along those lines. And there's a very big tie into balance and function and other conditions, right? Because it's very rare that we just have one issue if there's multiple layers, you know, we can, we can approach the patient holistically and look at their balance and their gait and their function, being able to move and move their head um, and bring in more aspects of vestibular therapy. So we are very fortunate to be in a unique position to help this patient population right. to afford us to do that. 100%. Right. No, I, I think it's great that, uh, cause my dad was a little skeptical. He, 
being a doctor, he, you know, he preferred that doctors look at it. And he, and he also emphasizes that a doctor still um, can, needs to diagnose and has the, the VNG and the different kinds of equipment that, that can help. And uh, the, I, after I did the maneuver, it was an emergency situation for me. <laughs> Um, but I, the next day I called and got in yeah. know, to see somebody and have them do it. Cause mine's, um, I started having problems clear back in 2002 after a rollerblading accident oh. and, it, and my, um, uh, I went to my doctor, I started having weird symptoms and I went to my doctor and she said, Oh, you're just anxious because, um, you started a company with your dad and you're under stress and that's why you're not, you're. And, you know, my, my symptoms were, um, you know, I couldn't go to the grocery store. If I, I just go to Costco and I'd have to lie down in the car and, but I could go run five miles, but then I'd, um, go to the computer and try to get some work done. And I thought I was not able to work because I just get so sick every time I sat down at the computer. And so she put me on Paxil and then I gained five pounds. And then I was depressed on top of <laughs> anxiety because I'm getting fat. And um, and so then and I was too embarrassed to tell my dad because I thought I was cracking up. And I um, all I had done at that point was um, we had written a grant together. I really, you know, before um, uh, before I started working on this project with my dad, I didn't even know the names of the canals. So it was all, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, so, so I finally admitted to him that I was, uh, uh, that I had a problem because, um, then I had a BPPV attack and I recognized right away what that was. So I went to him and I told him my other symptoms and he said that I had a post-concussive syndrome and he gave me corticosteroids in the ear, gave me shot, uh, three shots of corticosteroids over three months. And it, it didn't come back until 2008. So that's what, seven, six years without any problem. And I windsurfed and skied. And so, and then in 2008, it came back in a milder, it, it was milder. So that's amazing. It, yeah. That must have been a, a very uh, funny wake up call to kind of go through that after, you know, your dad spent his entire career treating and researching and studying and then going into, you know, this business with him. It must have been very odd to then have to go, oh, wait a minute. Now this is kind of hitting close to home. Yeah. No, I, 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 at least I, that was the one thing I understood when we first started out was benign positional vertigo. So, and I had worked in the cardiology field and I, I felt that the reason why his theories took so long to be accepted was because there was no money behind it, uh, no incentive for doctors um, or any medical profession really to take it on because it, it, you, to become expert, it takes time. Oh, and yeah. if you can't make ends meet or you're making 30 bucks or $50 on a patient that takes uh, 20 minutes or a half hour, it's hard to even make the overhead. And, um, and, and so um, the, the Epley Omniac system um, was technology where you could have an objective test and you could do a lot of diagnostics, not just for benign positional vertigo. I did a lot more. And yeah. so I felt that, you know, it would drive acceptance. It took us a long time, you know, to have it, to, to get it to come to market. But, uh, you know, in the medical field, it is very hard to get acceptance for something like an, a maneuver that is very cost effective. 
but it's but doc, but you know the medical professionals need to make money too. That's oh true. yeah, trying to trying to sell a vestibular program to a clinic director or your employer and let them know, hey, I can fix somebody in one or two visits. They go, but we need to see them for like twelve. What do you mean you're going to discharge them in two visits? That's not good. <laughs> what are we doing here? That's right. And um, and you know, as a I'm the person who was selling into the. I sold to physical therapists, MD, and different, you know, neurologists, ear doctors, and um, every single time, I was competing with uh, in the ear doc with the ear doctors is competing with the hearing aid room, you know, and hearing aids make uh, do do quite well because they're cash, mm -hmm. and so they're saying, no, are we gonna get a hearing aid fitting room or are we gonna get an Epliomax? So it's tough. It's it's it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough for the doctor who sees dizzy patients. It's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right when it comes to that. It, it's definitely more the philanthropic person who uh, really is kind of pulled into this because you're right. It's not a huge money making business, but it is a aspect of our healthcare system that is very underutilized because many people don't specialize in it, but it is very, very much needed uh, based on the prevalence of patients that have vestibular dysfunction. Um, so there's definitely that little bit of an offset, but it's it's the people that, it's the Epley's of the world that uh, that drive this and keep us going. Yes, <laughs> just, so, just so we're clear, I did not inherit my dad's genius. I'm, <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't do I didn't I wouldn't sell yourself short, Kathy. <laughs> well, I've just, I've always, I've always been in awe of my father, so... Well, you and many, many other clinicians. I mean, is there is there anything you'd like to direct our listeners to? Any information about your dad or his work or anything that has been currently going on that we should make our listeners aware of? Uh, well, no, I, I think we did a pretty good job. I think what I wanted to say about my dad was, you know, I think that somebody who changes the way that you approach medicine there's a lot that goes into that. They don't just one day wake up and have an idea. You know, it takes years of research. Uh, it takes years of sacrifice. You know, in my poor, long-suffering mother. <laughs> you know, I, you know, my dad was under a huge amount of stress. I think um, people need to understand what what it takes to get a medical advance accepted. It takes a generation. So, you know, again, and sometimes if there's medical technology behind it, it can happen a little bit faster, but it, it takes a generation to see, um, you know, a major medical change and have it accepted. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Yeah. And just I you know, never be thought about that. You know, I mean, I, I know there's resistance, but the sacrifices that your father made to make such a huge impact on on our medical field is incredible. And I thank you so much. We thank you so much for your insight and your stories that you shared about yourself and your experiences with vestibular symptoms too, because you are so relatable to so many of our, not only listeners, but patients. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I right. think, I'm, and I think your, uh, your podcast is great. Ah, thank thank you. you. Thank you for, for doing it. I really appreciate that, 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 that this resource is out there. Yeah, we're just hoping to put as much out there as we can. So we'll be sure. I want to link in the show notes to your episode um, some of the uh, information we found on your dad, some information they can find about Epley Maneuver and his career. And we just, again, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. This is really, really special and near and dear to our hearts. My privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everyone. 
If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.